0: I want to start a phrase and invite you to complete it. It's just a three-word phrase. I'll give the first two. I'd like you to supply the third word in the phrase. Here it is. God became... You are correct. God became man or God became flesh. Do you know those three words uh, are very divisive words? You could almost divide the world on the basis of their response to those three words, God became man. Those of us who are Christians rejoice over it. We cannot fully comprehend it, but we're so grateful for that truth. And yet that truth is not seen to be a truth at all by many people. Muslim people would reject that truth. Uh, In Judaism, where I come from, that truth would be rejected. In Hinduism and Buddhism, that truth of an enfleshed, embodied deity would be rejected out of hand. So it divides, but it is a marvelous, wonderful truth, and it's a truth that I want for us to investigate a little bit tonight, and we'll do so in the book of Hebrews, which we have labeled the letter of better. And in the letter of better, the writer of Hebrews, I think wants us to know that this incarnation, which literally means the enfleshment in the fleshness of Almighty God, is a better gift than any gift you can possibly imagine. And we will see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. The writer of Hebrews has persuaded us before tonight that the endless succession of sacrificed bulls and goats and lambs in the old economy cannot take away our sin. And in light of this, he leads us now into verse 5. And here is the first word in verse 5. It's the word, therefore. You see, since the old system of animal sacrifice was unable to permanently deal with our sin problem. Therefore, when he comes into the world, so I ask you, who is the he? Yes. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that when Jesus comes into the world, do you know what the implications of that little statement is? When Jesus comes into the world it implies that this jesus was before this jesus came in other words he has pre-existence nobody here does we were born birthed embodied and came to be according to this verse apparently jesus existed before he came into the world when he comes into the world, which means he had being and existence before he did. Well, folks, pre-existence is an attribute of one and only one, and that is God. Nobody here has pre-existence. You come uh, to a point of being in existence, but prior to that, you had no being. But this Jesus does god does that means this is a very strong declaration of the deity of jesus christ some people say the bible never claims jesus to be god whoa this is a statement of the eternality possessed only by god he existed before he came into the world in fact he existed before the world was so he is not only eternally pre-existent God, but he is God and he says, that's the next phrase in verse 5, he says, he speaks, to whom? In this case, you will see he's going to have conversation with God, his father, even from before the time when he became enfleshed. Folks, we're about to eavesdrop on a conversation between God the Father and God his Son before the Son came. You see, before the Son was birthed in Bethlehem, the Son was. And now join me. We get to listen to the conversation between God the Father, God the Son. Here's what the Son says to the Father. He said, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. He knows what we don't know too well. We think still God is wanting to exact a penalty with regard to our wrongdoing and our sin. Let's face it, a lot of us as Christians still operate this way. And so, we still labor under the misconception that God is after sacrifice and offering on our part, but the Son is reminding himself in conversation to the Father, Father, these things are not those things which you desired. Well, what then did the Father desire? Here's what the text says, but a body you have prepared for me. So, I ask you this question, why? Would the Father, God the Father, prepare a physical, flesh, human body for his eternally preexistent son? I want to suggest a few reasons. Tell me if you like these. First, he did this to save us. And by the way, that is our principal need. It's not the economy. It's not the environment. Those are big things. I understand that. It isn't even who gets elected next. These are important things. Please don't misunderstand. But our big need is to be saved from our sin, the penalty of which is death. So to be saved from the penalty of our sin, which is death, requires the death of a suitable sacrifice, a suitable substitute. And who could be a suitable substitute? Well, in order to be a substitute, in order to pay the penalty for sinful ones, you have to be a sinless one, and there's only one who meets the bill. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, he's a suitable substitute, but being sinless, as he is, is really not enough. In order to be a substitute for the sin of ones such as you and I, sinful ones, you have to have the capacity to die. You have to be die in order to die in the place of those who deserve to die. But God, who is eternal, has no beginning nor end, cannot die. Did you know that? He is not subject to death. So there is a problem here. How could God... In the form of man and fleshed, God be our substitute, though He be sinless. How he could, how could He be our substitute when He's not subject to death and dying? Ah, this is the reason why He came in fleshed. He took on a human body subject to death and decay, so that He could die in our place, so that we would be absolved of the penalty due to our sin. And God the Father, you must understand this, would surely not have subjected his son to the ultimate penalty of dying if, in fact, there was any possible way for us to save ourselves. Please be persuaded once and for all, no loving father would put his son through this in vain. No loving father would subject his son to this kind of punishment and penalty if there was an alternative. Look no further. There is no alternative. You cannot save yourself. Neither can I. Nobody can save you except the Savior, the sinless substitute who died in your place. So this is one reason why the father prepared from before time a body uh, which was occupied by the otherwise eternally preexistent son so that he could come to save us. And there's a second reason. It is that he would sympathize with us. He took on a human body to save us first, secondly, to sympathize with us, except for sin. Do you realize Jesus experienced everything we do? Therefore, we can never say, God, you just don't understand. We can never say that. You see, he does. He understands sorrow. He understands loss. He understands mistreatment and rejection. He even understands, think about this, Almighty God even understands hunger and thirst. How? He has a physical body. That's how. He had bones. He had skin. He hungered. He groaned. He has emotions. He experienced joy but he also experienced sorrow he suffered as a human therefore he can sympathize with humans who suffer we could never say oh god you do not understand jesus came have you experienced thirst anybody here ever get thirsty maybe now are you thirsty hungry bored Water is very important to us, for sure. We would die without it. If you lose, your body is made up of a lot of water. If you lose 2% of your body's water supply, your energy will decrease by 20%. A 10% decrease in your body's water supply, you won't be able to walk. If you experience a 20% decrease in your body's water supply, you will die. See how critical it is? Now, keeping this in mind, listen to this verse from John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. The maker of heaven and earth experienced thirst. We can never say, oh, God, you don't know what I'm going through. He not only experienced thirst, he experienced the throes of life. What a God. What a God. That's why we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. This is an interesting week for me and my people around the world. This is the season of three of our probably most holy holidays. It started a few weeks ago with Rosh Hashanah. That's our new year. Then it culminated 10 days later with the holiest day in our religious year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement In the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we fast, we pray, we repent, we plead to God to forgive us the sins of the prior year. We wish each other this little epithet. May your name be inscribed in the book of life. My people don't know if their names are or are not. They're trying to do more good deeds than bad deeds so in the balance before God. If the good outweighs the bad, their name will be inscribed in the book of life. That's not true, is it? But that's what my people think. And then after Yom Kippur, about five days later, is the beginning of the holiday, which is going on right now, this week. It's called Sukkot. Sukkot. It's written about in Leviticus chapter 23. You could read about it there. You probably even know about it. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. It commemorates the time when Israel, in her wilderness wanderings, lived in temporary huts, dwellings, tabernacles, booths. But they could always look up and remember the God who was providing for them a supply of food and water, shelter, even during their wilderness journey. Folks, you and I live in temporary booths. Give it a little pinch, (laughs) it's your body. It's not meant to be forever. They wear out. Aren't you glad you came for these encouraging words? (laughs) They're prone to headaches sometimes, disease sometimes. Sometimes they require surgery. They're magnificent. We thank God for these marvelous vehicles, but they're not meant to be forever. They're just a sukkah. Plural, Sukkot. We're all traveling around around, little temporary booths. They're subject to the throes of life. They're subject to the pains and the sufferings and the hardships of life. These little temporary booths. And we have a God who understands because he came in one. (laughs) He came in a Sukkah. He came in a tabernacle. I'm not adding that. I want to read this to you. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, and the word, if you read the context, you would see, I'm sure you, you know already, that's a reference to Jesus. And the word became, meaning he wasn't always, the word became flesh. That's the incarnation. And dwelt among us. It's marvelous. Even more so, when you look to the word dwelt in the original language it actually is this and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us that's the word and the pre-existent deity who we know as jesus who has no beginning nor end he came in flesh The word became a temporary booth, a sukkah, and dwelt amongst us. Every time we come to this week of Sukkot, it lasts a whole week. I think of Jesus coming to be one (laughs) so that you and I could know, oh my goodness, a God who came to tabernacle amongst us a God who sympathized with us. So the Lord Jesus came in a body to save us and to sympathize with us. And uh, then thirdly, he came in a body to show us the Father. So I ask you a question. What is God like? You'd have to say maybe your guess is as good as mine. But we are so fortunate because guesswork is not necessary. We don't have to guess about what God is like because He came in a body. He came in concrete, physical, visible form. So, of Him, it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What a verse! All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so, the incarnation is the ultimate self-disclosure of the otherwise hidden, unknowable, and invisible God. But for the incarnation, but for the enfleshment of Jesus Christ, you and I would be left with nothing but guesswork and speculation. But we don't have to. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father. It's a Hebraism. In the bosom of the Father, that means same essential nature. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, I have to tell you what that means. See where it says he has explained him? The word means he has exegeted him. Now, this is not a Greek class, but I only do this because I think you'll get excited. When we, you go to Bible college or seminary, they use the term exegesis. That means to study the Bible so as to lift its meaning. Not to read stuff into it, but to draw things out of it. Exegesis. That's the word in the verse I just gave you, John 1.18. And and, uh, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the... He has exegeted him. He has lifted from the pages of history the otherwise invisible and unseen God so as to reveal him to us clear as day so that we need not guess and speculate and say, I think this, I think that, this is your opinion, this is my opinion. Oh, no. Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ has exegeted Father from the eons, from the heavens, from his abode, so as to reveal him to us. Now let's eavesdrop just for a few more minutes on some more of the conversation between Father and Son. It's recorded in verse 6. The Son says, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. Verse 7, I have come. Folks, we cannot, we could not get to his level, so he stooped to ours. I have come. He observed from afar human misery, and he came in response to it. He came for you, and he came for me, and this at great personal expense. And it was a sacrifice. He was fully prepared from before time to make he knew this was to be his destiny. That's why he said, it's in verse 7, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. What's he referring to? He's referring to the scriptures. We call them now the Old Testament scriptures that was available when Hebrews was written. The Old Testament, in the scroll of the book, he said it was written of me. Folks, you know the prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the birth and life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, perhaps the most classic, is contained in Isaiah chapter 53. I commend it to your reading sometime. I would like to just extract a few phrases from Isaiah 53. It was written by Isaiah, of course, seven to 800 years before the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Please tell me as I read this to you, unedited and just as it is written, tell me who you think it's speaking of. This is an Isaiah. This is the Old Testament. He's a prophet. This, he wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus. It says this. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through. Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, said this seven to 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Could you please tell me who the him is? That's Jesus. Thank God you recognize it. Let me tell you something. Even if you don't recognize the him to be he, he recognized the him to be he. He said in the scroll of the book, this is written of me. The Lord Jesus did not come on impulse. He knew it was his destiny from before time to come to be the substitute for sin who we needed. Even Isaiah foretold us of his coming, his death, his crucifixion for us 700 years before it actually happened. Jesus was, from before time, prepared to come to us and for us at great personal cost, in a body prepared for him by God, his Father, And all this in fulfillment of what had been previously said of him in the scroll of the book. My goodness, it's great to be a Christian. Jesus is eternally God. There never was a time when he was not. There never was a time when he became God. He always was God. And yet remaining who he was, he became who he was not. He became man. Why? In some, to save us, to sympathize with us, and to show us the Father. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is proof that God will do anything to draw near to us. Will you forsake him? Will you deny him? The incarnation is proof that God will do anything to draw near to us. Will you walk away? Will you say no? What a gift. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that this gift, the enfleshed Jesus, is a gift far better than any other we could ever imagine. Folks, there are many names for Jesus in the Bible. He's called the bright morning star, he's called the Alpha and Omega called the Prince of Peace. He's called the Lamb of God. Love the names, don't you? But I think perhaps one one of the most wonderful, perhaps the most significant name is this. Are you familiar with it? Can you see it on the screen right now, please? (laughs) Can you read that? Oh, you got that right. Thank you for doing that. Oh, you got it from your dad. Daniel, you did good, my friend. It is Immanuel. We make one word out of it. Emanuel. It's two words in Hebrew. The first one, Immanuel, you know what it means? With us. Is. And then the second, those two letters, see with little two dots under it? That's El. With us is God. You've heard of Elohim, El Elyon, El Shaddai, El, this is God's name. Emmanuel. With us is God. Magnificent. Emmanuel. Why do we need God to be with us? Come on, folks. Without Him, we are at best incomplete. Though we would arrogantly like to think more of ourselves than we are, the fact is we are merely creatures who owe our being to Creator. We would like to pump up the flesh and all the rest. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is we are not self-generated, nor are we self-sustained. We are creatures who trace our existence. We have no pre-existence. We are creatures who trace our start to a creator. We are creatures who attribute our sustenance to a creator. Oh, we need God to be with us and he created us with a grand purpose it is to be in harmony communion relationship with him how do we know this by examining the equipment with which he has equipped us like none other for instance he gave us a mind he didn't do this with rocks and trees he gave us a mind why so that we could think on his glorious attributes he gave us a heart emotions why so that we could have affection for him above affection for anything any person else and he gave us a will we could say yes we could say no he gave us a will so that we would choose to voluntarily obey him when you look to the equipment with which the creator has equipped us we find out it is his design for us to draw near to him God with us would we live life as if we could be without him my dear friends the summation of human history throughout the and down to our very day is a terrible evidence of the fact that we have tried to run the experiment of life without the creator how are we doing not very good He designed us for communion with him, and folks, apart from him, we're on a mad craving to satisfy the restlessness. It's now more present in our day than ever before. A mad quest for rest in all kinds of substitutes and replacement for Almighty God. Augustine once said, "'For you have formed us for yourself.'" And our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Folks, if we reject the rest offered from the God who is with us, Emmanuel, we have to find substitutes for God, drugs, work, until you come to. You don't find rest. You find bondage. Alcohol works at anesthetizing the pain until you come to. Now on top of it, you have guilt and shame. Sex outside of traditional God-ordained one man, one woman in covenant bond of marriage. What a shame that we have to spell it out so clearly today. Works to provide temporary gratification and then disruption and devastation and shame and loss. If we reject the God who is with us, then we're given to compulsive possessing of things which end up ultimately possessing us. On and on and on, all of these things... Or maybe even things that look a little more virtuous. Humanitarian efforts. The motive of which, however, is not so much to help humanity, but to distract me from my own restlessness. On and on and on. But Augustine is right. Apart from you, for you have formed us for yourself. Our hearts are restless. They don't have to be. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We sing it, don't we? Don't have to wait for Christmas. You can sing it in your hearts. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel has come. (laughs) And his name is Jesus. Jesus is our Emmanuel. And what a gift. The writer of Hebrews is right. This is a gift like no other. I end with this simple question. Have you received the gift? Wonderful. Wonderful. Have you not? Why not before you leave tonight? Come into my life, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for Thee. You came at great personal sacrifice to become enfleshed. I'm looking often for a means to escape the world and you came into it for me. That's true. I'm not being overly dramatic for you. And you experienced everything I do. All the throes of life. And you died to save me. You lived to sympathize with me and to show me the Father. Come into my life. Save me from the penalty of my sin. Fill me up with your presence. Give me the gift of renewed, restored communion. Let me live in fulfillment of the purpose for which I have been made to know God and enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose for which we have been made. Have you received the gift? of life abundant and eternal through God who took on the life of humankind so that he could die as a human, raise up from death, give us victory even over death and help us to live now and forevermore for him. Have you received the gift? Lord Jesus, I'm done, but I think you're never done. For you desire for none to perish but for all to be saved. Oh, God, would you do the work of salvation even in the lives of the ones perhaps here tonight who have yet to say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. I accept the fact that you died as a substitute on the cross for my sin. Forgive me. Show me the Father sympathize with me. Oh God, I pray you would save the one, the two, the more who stand in need of salvation. And for the rest of us, we thank you with our lives for this inexpressible gift you have given us in coming to be with us. Oh God, we thank you and praise you, Jesus, our Emmanuel. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.